Exodus 1, 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua, 16. He said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, 20, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. You may be seated. May the Lord write his word on our hearts. Father, this is a very timely text and a very sobering one. There's nothing new under the sun. And we have two heroines in this story, probably some of the most unsung heroes in Scripture, two women who took a stand against the most powerful man and nation at that time in the world. And they were filled with courage. What drove their courage or bravery was the fear of the Lord. And Lord, we need some of that today. (laughs) And if we just had an ounce of the courage of these women, I think a lot of us would be doing a lot better in these days. But we are all human, and I'm sure that they had their moments of fearfulness and wondering what was going to happen to them. And we do as well, Lord. Our humanity, uh, we struggle with it. We struggle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. But each time we open your word, we know we're going to be encouraged. We know that there are lessons from the Old Testament stories for us today, that we might be encouraged, that through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. These two women lived in the very history in which we lived a long time ago, but the same world, the same issues, the same problems, and they overcame, and you blessed them. And that's what we need, Lord. This is very relevant to our time. We're facing unprecedented times as a church. And yet we know that the same God who blessed these Hebrew midwives and the same God who brought the plagues on Egypt is the same God we hide behind the blood of the Passover lamb if we are in him. And I pray that your will will be done this morning as we've been singing about your will, have your way in me, and all of these songs about running to you, Lord, I pray that that would be true. It would not be just what we sing or even what we study, but it would be reality for us. So may you fill us, may you encourage us, may you be glorified in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Well, uh, this morning there is some mature content, and uh, I I don't see many little ones in here uh, this morning, but I want to just give you a warning. I'm going to do the best I can with the mature content, but for those of you who have families that are watching online, you might want to just kind of look at the text and see what's ahead, and I'll do the best I can to keep it uh, as PG-13 as I can, but there's some hard stuff in here. The bravery of the Hebrew midwives, Exodus 1, verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. Now, this speaking may not be directly to them. It may be unlikely that the Pharaoh of Egypt spoke directly to a couple of midwives that appear to be senior nurses of their time. It might be older and have committed their life to this particular task. They helped the Hebrew women in the birthing of children. We do know that at this time, God was radically, even supernaturally, multiplying the nation, even under uh, different orders that the Pharaoh had already given. In fact, he had put them into a bitter slavery. The Egyptians, verse 13, chapter 1, compelled the sons of Israel, this is the first kind of plank of his evil plan, to labor rigorously. They made the Israelites' lives bitter with hard labor, 114, and mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. They put them in bitter bondage. And that's what's led up to this point. And so the nation continues to multiply. God is protecting the nation. Pharaoh's evil plan doesn't work, so he ramps it up. He's going to take it to another stage now, and he's going to ask these midwives to do what many of us would think is the unthinkable, and that is to kill children as they enter into the world, namely Hebrew males. Because remember that the king of Egypt had a fear, and his fear was that Israel was multiplying at such a rate that if an enemy came into the land, that Israel might uh, join that enemy and might even fight against Egypt. And so he was trying to keep them down. And remember, I reminded you when we opened the book that there's a lot of typology in the book of Exodus. And the Pharaoh is a type of Satan trying to keep us down, trying to keep the taskmasters over us so that we don't rise up and serve the Lord in the way that we should. Uh, the uh, nation of Egypt is a type of the world, the system of the world. We think it's set up for freedom, but it's really set up for slavery. Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And there are people who think they're free, but they're in some form of bondage to the taskmasters that they have in their lives. The king of Egypt saw that what his first plan of bitter bondage and hard labor wasn't working, so he went to phase two, if you will. And the king of Egypt, that's another way to describe the pharaoh, he was known as a king as well, spoke to the Hebrew midwives, those who help in the birthing process. And their names are here for us, one of whom was named Shifra, the other was named Pua. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard these names before, I'm not sure if you're very familiar with the story, but these are two names that you should have within your biblical uh, framework, and you should remember them. Two very brave women, very unsung heroines of the Bible and of the Old Testament. And they were brave in the face of very difficult times. They're described in verse 15 in the New American Standard as Hebrew midwives. And the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, has now turned from slavery to slaughter, implementing a second de deadly stage of his forced population control program, calling for the direct killing of Hebrew baby boys. I think the call was to do this subtly. And here's probably something of a, of a picture of how this would work. Since a midwife was something like a doctor in the birthing process, if she identified the baby boy as a male, 
I think there was some subtlety to this. This is a bit of speculation. But in the throes of the birthing process, when the woman was going through the agony and so forth, I think what Pharaoh was basically saying is identify the males and either smother them or strangle them. And in the ancient world, there were a lot of uh, babies that died during birth, during the birthing process. There wasn't all the medical technology that we have today, and still we have losses of children at this stage. And so I think that the Pharaoh was basically saying something like this, smother them or strangle them, and then just say to the mother, I'm so sorry, but your baby is dead. That's precisely what he was proposing in terms of this phase to kill these Hebrew baby boys. Of course, he was trying to usurp God's authority over life and death, and that's what happens when anyone gets involved in something like this and begins to try to make the call about humanity and the value of humanity. That's happening in our day now. We are on a slippery slope. When you begin a process where you begin to think that society can decide who is valuable and who should live and who should die, you then take the role of God. And when you try to take the role of God, in his hands are life and death. He wrote the number of your days before one of them, Psalm 139, came to pass. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Who are we to assess value? How do we know who's going to grow up and do great things, even if they have some inadequacies as we would deem them when they come into this world? God forbid that we would begin to measure by some measuring stick that we don't want applied to us should we go through some problem. If you lost your leg or lost your arm or lost your sight or lost your hearing, you're still you. You still have value. Within humanity, we are made in the image of God. We have intrinsic value because we are made in the image of our maker. God forbid that we begin to play God. And the Pharaoh being a type of Satan and Egypt being a type of the world, you can see the application for today's culture. This is precisely what we are doing. And it is egregious in the eyes of God that we would begin to do this type of thing. I have some quotes for you later to show you how barbaric some of the higher echelons of academia are beginning to make statements about children coming into the world. Pharaoh is resisted by the heroic stand of two women. By the way, not even the Pharaoh is named, but they are named in this account. They are unsung heroines of the Bible. Not as well known as, for example, in Esther or others, yet their courage is inspiring. And I pray that you would be inspired by their courage. I pray that you would say, if they can do it, then I can do it. And we live in unprecedented times. Right now, pastors are being challenged probably like no other time in the U.S., there's a Calvary Chapel pastor in Maine right now who has a recovery program. His name, his name is Pastor Ken Graves. He pastors in Maine. And the governor of that state is trying to shut down everything he does. She will allow secular training in his facilities, but the moment they open the Bible, she will not allow that. Now, some people are saying, oh, well, everything that's being done is just being done for the safety of the people, for the sake of the virus. Now, we've got to be wise about this virus because it can be deadly for some people. But does it sound like the story of Pastor Ken Graves in Maine is about the virus or is it about what he believes? 
See, he believes that recovery comes from being changed from the inside out. And he has had a great amount of success as he's ministered for years up there. But now they're, they're making a distinction. Whenever it's religious, then it can't happen. Now you tell me that that's just about a virus. And it's not persecution of the church of God. I could go on and on with a lot of stories, modern day stories that we're living through right now. But whether the Pharaoh spoke to the midwives directly or through a chain of command is almost irrelevant. The order came down as it would come down to us in this modern day. Some order from you know, the high echelons, of, high echelons of government. This is what you will do now. And the question is, what should we do? Especially when ungodly laws come down the pike. Well, they are going to stand and... Their profession was to bring children into the world, not to murder them. This goes against everything that they would stand for as midwives. They're supposed to help women in the birthing process. They were supposed to help bring children into this world. How could Pharaoh think that they would just jump on board with such a terrible, dastardly uh, command? But Pharaoh's worldview, maybe he didn't care. Maybe he thought all people had the same morality as he does. Maybe that was his assumption. And maybe that's the assumption that people have when they talk to you. That you're the same as everybody else. And you shouldn't be the same as everybody else if you belong to Christ. Because if you belong to Christ, he is your king. Amen? He is the king of your life. It's his values, his priorities, the transcendence of his kingdom that really matters to us. Yesterday, I went to the dentist. It's always a wonderful, joyful uh, visit to the dentist. And there are, you know, some, I've joked with some of my friends, there are no longer regular cleanings at the dentist. Everything's got to be a deep cleaning because usually we have deep issues, right? Can I get a witness? Anybody? So uh, I had one of those yesterday and it was so much fun, the, the deep cleaning process at the dentist. Now, prior to that process, though, I was there the day before, and uh, the dentist did the full exam, and she said, oh, you're not grinding your teeth? And I said, no, not that I know of. And she said, do you know, this, this dentist says to me two days ago, do you know that we have people coming in here with chipped teeth at unprecedented numbers? And I said, what do you mean? She said, people are grinding their teeth and chipping their teeth from the dentist. She said, I can't believe how, how is it that you're not grinding your teeth, she asked. And the doors of heaven opened. Ah! Now, usually, the dentist asks you questions when your mouth is numb, right? So that, and then you're like, you have me at a bit of a disadvantage right now because I can't talk. And, right? And you're all, it's that, I think they like it. Don't you think they like it? You're all numb. Right? I can normally talk. But anyway, I wasn't numb at the time. And I said, because I, the reason I'm not freaked out is because I have the Lord in my life. I'm human, but I'm not freaking out about everything. And I said, do you know anything about the Bible? She said, no. I said, there's a Bible verse that says, perfect love casts out fear. And I have the love of God in my life. And she just sat there for a moment, kind of thought about it, and then she did this. She said, well, yeah, it is really about the focus of your mind, isn't it? Right? That's kind of a dismissal, but... Here's the thing, the Bible verse went to her, and it doesn't come back void, so we'll see what the Lord does with it. 
But there are opportunities everywhere. People are freaking out. These two women, their names, Shifra in Hebrew, means something like beautiful one or perhaps dawn or fair. But let's just keep it simple. Shifra is beautiful one. And pua likely means splendid one. It can also mean fragrant. These are Hebrew names. And you could say, just simply put, if you're taking notes, their names mean beauty and splendor. And I think that one way to look at this is to look at it from heaven's perspective and to know that when we do the right thing, God says, that's beautiful. That's beauty and splendor. And sometimes we beat ourselves up, you know, because we, we want to do the right thing all the time. But do you know, when you do the right thing, when you take the moral high ground, when you do things for the love of God and the fear of the Lord, I believe heaven says that's beautiful. I believe heaven says that's what splendor is all about. It's beautiful in his eyes. Rise and shine, church of the living God. Now, the midwives are named, and I don't think that they're Egyptian. I think that they're Hebrew, even though there's maybe a little bit of debate. And some people wonder about this because they wonder, how could the Pharaoh expect Hebrew midwives to kill Hebrew baby boys? But again, I'm not sure that his morality you know, and his worldview really uh, concerned himself with these kinds of things. And so uh, there's an application here for us. When we are asked to do things that are not in keeping with the will of God, we must practice civil disobedience. Amen? Huh? Anybody out there? Now, civil disobedience doesn't mean civil stupidity. We need to be wise about how we do things and why we do things. And we should have a biblical reason for what we do. If we're not going to obey the government, it should be because there's a higher law. And that's what this is all about today. This is about a clear, higher law. How could these Hebrew women kill Hebrew baby boys? How could they? How could they be expected to do such a thing? They couldn't, and they wouldn't. Pharaoh was now in direct confrontation with God's covenant promises made to Abraham. Pharaoh becomes a bit of a type of an antichrist opposing God's special plan because remember, the Savior is going to come through this Hebrew line. One commentator says, from the very day that Adam and Eve first sinned, God had always promised to send his people someone to save them from their sins. The offspring of a woman, a son to crush Satan's head, Genesis 3.15. God's people trusted that promise, waiting in hope of the coming of Christ. Whether he knew it or not, Pharaoh was the seed of the serpent that God promised would strike at the heel of the woman's seed. By trying to prevent the Savior from becoming a man, Pharaoh became an antichrist. Pharaoh's attempt to exterminate the sons of Israel anticipated all the antichrists of history. The slogans change, but the sin remains the same. Whether it's Adolf Hitler and his final solution for eliminating the Jews or communist China and its one-family, one-child policy or the pro-choice movement in the West, it's all opposition to life and ultimately hatred to God. You know, if you survey the Bible and world history, you will find that this has happened a number of times. Haman in the book of Esther, Herod in the book of Matthew, Hitler in our recent past, and much, many more examples could be stated. This is reality. 
where someone paints a person or a people as a threat and there can be now an ethnic cleansing, they might call it, or a killing of a people group and it's because they're seen as a threat to society. And this is on the rise in our world, folks. And we have to have our eyes open. We have to know how to pray. Satanic attempts to cut off the line leading to Christ are all throughout the scripture. And of course, I just named some in world history. Now, Pharaoh's gonna make a bad career move because he's now gonna oppose the living God. And this is the thing that you and I need to remember, that when we are opposed for what we believe, it's not necessarily against us, it's against our God. Amen? It's a spiritual battle. It's against what we believe and who we stand for. And I know we're all human, and I know it can be hard sometimes when you get dismissed or uh, you know, people just marginalize you or even try to cancel you. 16 says, he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. If it's a daughter, then she shall live. And all the women said, praise the Lord. <laughs> no, never mind. Interestingly, later, Moses' parents and Moses himself uh, whom the midwives likely saved will be faced with a similar choice. I, I want you to think about the fact that Moses, the deliverer of the nation, is about to be born somewhere in this history. Is it possible that the Hebrew midwives, because of their refusal to obey the ungodly order of the Pharaoh, saved the, the deliverer, Moses himself? allowed him to be born. And then his mother is going to have to put him onto the Nile. Remember the famous story, it'll be in chapter two, because she could no longer hide him, which tells you that there was a real threat going on. And from what I've read, that Hebrew male babies did die at this time. Hebrews eleven twenty three through 26, write it down for your notes, says, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking, Moses was, to the reward. In Hebrews eleven twenty three through 26, we've looked at it, Previously, they were not afraid, they refused, they considered, and they thought about the treasures of the eternal kingdom rather than the temporal treasures of Egypt. This is why some of us get backed into a corner in our decision-making, because we think about the temporal rather than the eternal. We think about the here and now. We get backed into a corner, and it's very human to get backed into a corner, and it's very human to make mistakes, and we all have made them, and thank God for God's grace but they considered, they decided, and uh, they're going to hold the line. There's a couple of views about the women on the birth stool. Let me just, I'll just mention this in passing. Some believe that they are birth stones and how somehow women may have uh, sat on these stones in the birthing process. That seems rather bizarre to me that you would choose a stone to sit on in the birthing process. I mean, I would imagine, I'm a guy, so I have to be very careful here, 
that the birthing process is difficult enough without adding to it a rock for a bed. Can I get a witness? Women? Any? Yeah, okay. And uh, without the modern-day uh, helps that uh, are available now. So some say that the birthing stones, and here's where I'll just keep it at this level, but I think you can figure it out, have the idea of just identifying the child through the parts of the child. So essentially, some commentators are saying that this is not about where the Hebrew women are sitting in the birthing process, but more about looking to see whether it's a male or a female. And making a on-the-spot judgment, if it's a male, to do the dirty work of the Pharaoh, which he wouldn't do by himself, by the way. Have you noticed that with bad guys? They want other people to do their dirty work. They're pretty good about sending orders out to other people. Hey, take care of this. Hey, do this for me. But they won't do it themselves. And so I think this is just simply an identification. You might be asking the question, and if you've read on this, some people do ask the question, why just the males? Why, why didn't he just say kill every child because then he would take care of the problem, wouldn't he? And there's some conjecture that the Pharaoh wanted the women spared because he wanted them for himself and his Egyptian buddies. And uh, when Abraham in the book of Genesis travels to Egypt because of a famine, he says to Sarah, his wife, say that you're my sister because you're a beautiful lady. And by the way, she's 65 at this point. Uh, so she's a pretty 65-year-old, which is awesome. All the ladies said, yeah, praise the Lord, right? And he said, you're beautiful, so they'll kill me and keep you. So say you're my sister. <gasps> Come on, honey, please. <laughs> Tell them a lie, right? And she did. But the Pharaoh took her into his household, into his harem, and God beat up the Pharaoh for that one, and he found out that she was Abram's wife and said, what have you done to me, man? <laughs> Sorry, dude. <laughs> That's a very loose translation. That's a surfer's translation. <laughs> Sorry, dude. Anyway. And so this is the brutal thing that he asked these midwives to do. This is from an article eight years ago in Life News. Two bioethicists, Dr. Alberto Ghibellini and Francesca Minerva, published an outrageous paper in the Journal of Medical Ethics justifying the deliberate premeditated murder of newborn babies. During the first days and weeks after birth, Ghibellini and Minerva wrote, quote, when circumstances occur after birth that would justify abortion, what we call after-birth abortion should be permissible. If a newly born child poses an economic burden on a family or is disabled or is unwanted, that child can be murdered in cold blood because the baby lacks intrinsic value, according to Ghibellini and Minerva, and is not a person. Ghibellini and Minerva wrote, actual people's well-being could be threatened by these babies. These babies are a threat to your well-being. Sound familiar? They, they might be an economic burden. Oh, I got news for you. Oh, they are. And not only when they first come into the world. <laughs> Can I get a witness? 
There's a stretch of about a decade where every time you turn around, they want money. And you say, get a job, you're eight years old, figure it out. Right? You can go broke. Economic burden, that's just the beginning point. But we had children because we know that in having children, there are so many layers of beauty to raising a child and teaching them and providing for them. Yes, it's hard. But can you imagine somebody saying, hey, if you figure out after they're born, they might be an economic burden. Why don't you just go ahead and take them out? These are scientists in journals that are called ethics. What in the world is happening to us? Ghibellini and Minerva, well, they believe that babies are expendable. They say something like this, newborn infants, like their slightly younger sisters and brothers in the womb, cannot have formed any aim that she is prevented from accomplishing. So they don't, they don't have any goals yet, so you can just kill them because they haven't figured out their goals, and so they really have no purpose. So we propose afterbirth abortion. Listen to this. Princeton's Peter Singer suggested a couple years ago, there are various, quoting now, there are various things that you could say that are sufficient to give some moral status to a child after a few months, maybe six months or something like that. And you get perhaps to full moral status. Really only after two years, says Peter Singer, should you give full moral status to a child. Well, Dr. James Watson, Nobel laureate, for unraveling the mystery of DNA, wrote in Prism magazine, if a child were not declared alive until three days after birth and all parents could be allowed the choice, only a few are given under the present system. The doctor could allow the child to die if the parents so choose and save a lot of misery and suffering. I believe this view is the only rational, compassionate attitude to have. And finally, in like manner, Dr. Francis Crick, who received the Nobel Prize with Watson about DNA, said, no newborn infant should be declared human until it has passed certain tests regarding its genetic endowment, that if it fails these tests, it forfeits its right to live. Close quote. You got to pass the test when you're born, or you forfeit your right to live. These are co-discoverers of DNA's structure. These are the medical people of our day in the secular world that just say, just say that a baby's not human yet, and it'll all be fine. Will it? 60 million babies aborted since the 1960s now in America, and some of us wonder why what's happening today is happening. Hmm. And I ask you the question, do you think we've truly repented as a church and a nation for our true sins? I don't think so. You guys see the nonsense that's happening right now in our government where, you know, we have some big issues going on and we're talking about, you know, gender neutral terms and redefining pretty much everything that was basic common sense for millennia. We have to ask some serious questions, don't we? And oftentimes when people are challenged on these points, they say, oh, I, I have faith, I believe. 
But the midwives, 17, feared God. Here's a key, brethren. They feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. And they did not do as the king of Egypt, middle of 17, had commanded them, but they let the boys live. The fear of the Lord in the Pentateuch, says one writer, means to be honest, faithful, trustworthy, upright, and above all, religious. This is true religion in the sight of our God, to help orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world, says the book of James. I think that's 127. This is what it means to truly worship God. It is not just about a song. It is about how you live. And the fear of the Lord should squash all other fears. Amen? So many people just frozen by fear today. And for what? Because we're so concerned about you know, what people think or what's being you know, the next law coming down the pike. True fear of the Lord is what fuels and drives true courage. True fear of the Lord drives true courage. It, by the way, bravery doesn't mean that you're not afraid. I've been afraid many times in my life for what God has asked me to do. And I've had my conversations with God. Are you sure? Can you get somebody else? Why me? Oh, Lord, help me. I don't want to do it. But you know what? Courage is conquering your fear as you lean into the power of God. One of the things that God does when he stretches us is he makes us rely on a power source outside of ourselves. Amen? This is where we need to be. That's why sometimes when we lose some of the privileges and the freedoms that we've had, it's not necessarily a bad thing because we have to push into God. Amen? And I hope that's what you've done in the last year. You know, it's, I'm not saying it's easy, but let me just give you in rapid fire some verses about the fear of God. Nehemiah says, I put my Hananiah, my brother, Nehemiah 7-2, if you're taking notes, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, in much opposition as they rebuilt uh, the walls. He was a faithful man, Hananiah was, and a faithful man and feared God more than many. It says of Cornelius, the uh, centurion, leader of the Italian band, he, he backed up Sinatra back in the day, just kidding, that's a joke. Anyway, he, he was a devout man who feared God, Acts 10.2. In Jethro's counsel to Moses later in the book of Exodus 18.18, 18, I believe, or 18.21, check me on that. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth. Job 1.8, God is boasting on Job. Have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him, blameless and upright. He fears God and turns away from evil. Job 1.8. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. Proverbs 9, 9-11 says, Give instruction to a wise man and he will still be wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in his learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Listen to this. For by me, wisdom, your days will be multiplied, just like happened in Israel, 
or in uh, Egypt with Israel. And years of life will be added to you. That's Proverbs 9, 9 through 11. We need courage to stand for the Lord. When I consider the book of Daniel, for example, when Daniel refused to defile himself with the uh, choice food from the king's table, he stood in little things, and then he had the courage later in the book of Daniel to stand in bigger things. Little compromises will weaken you so that you won't have courage when you have the big moments of life. Please hear what I'm saying. But if you are faithful in the small things, if you refuse even to make little compromises, and obviously we need God's grace, and I'm not saying anybody is going to be perfect, but if you are faithful in the small things, you will be able to be courageous in the, day, the bigger days, the bigger challenges. Do you believe that? Right now, this is what we need. Lord, help me to be faithful. Help me to stand like they stood in the book of Acts. Help me to embrace Psalm 111, verse 10, that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. Psalm 111, verse 10. Psalm 34, 11 says, Come, children, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, Those who fear the Lord will have peace and love life and see good days. Not easy days, but it will make for a soft pillow. The Hebrew word for fear is the word regularly used for piety. It doesn't mean that you're shaking in your boots at God. It just means that you want to honor Him. You want to be obedient to your Father. You want to do the right thing. Corey Timboom comes to mind. Remember when they hid the Jews from Nazi Germany at great personal expense. There's a higher law. Solomon writes at the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, when all has been heard, this is the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. Listen, because this applies to every person, key, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Ecclesiastes 12, 13, and 14. Keep his commandments because every act that we have done, Jesus said, get this, every word that we've spoken frivolously, God will judge. Thank God for the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm not sure that we really consider the holiness of God and the righteousness of God as we consider our decisions. So the, they didn't do it, right? They refused. So the king of Egypt called the midwives. Now, I'm not sure the first was an in-person meeting, but this was probably now come into my office. And he said to them, why have you done this thing? Why have you let the boys live? Gee, golly, Pharaoh, really? Hebrew midwives who have a job of safely bringing children into the world, letting Hebrew baby boys live? Is it tough for you to figure this one out? Now, how much time went by, we don't know, but some people believe years because when children are born and you hold a child, let's say, in a blanket, it's a little tough to know whether it's a baby boy or a baby girl. It's going to take a while, right? And it may be this. Maybe the Hebrew kids were at school one day and maybe one of Pharaoh's officials started counting boys and girls, you know? Maybe a year, two years has gone by, whatever. One, two, three, four, five. Hey, there's the same amount of boys as there is girls. Hey, Pharaoh, I don't know if the Hebrew midwives have been keep, keeping your program. Hey, get them in here right now. Come into my office. 
Now, if it had been a couple of years, do you think that the midwives were a little bit prepared on their answer? I'm sure they had gotten together a few times, had some prayer meetings. Oh, Lord, what should we say? Oh, Lord, help us. Oh, Lord, how much does your prayer life improve when things are a little bit touch and go? Anybody? Yeah, we get a little bit fervent with prayer, don't we? Lord, give me wisdom. Lord, open up the gates of heaven. Lord, I need to hear from you. Oh, we seek him. And when you seek God, he will be found. I'm sure that they sought the Lord. I'm sure that they talked about strategy. And they come in. I'm sure they took a couple of big gulps. Can you imagine your Hebrew midwife? coming in to meet with the Pharaoh of Egypt, and he's going to confront you. Maybe the executioners were standing right there. You defy the Pharaoh, I would imagine you die. This is not just, oh, you know, he might fire us if we... No. No, this is, you might die. That's bravery, don't you think? And the Hebrew midwives said this to the Pharaoh. Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, I think you've got to see some humor here. They are vigorous. <laughs> that word in Hebrew means they're full of vital energy. The Egyptians, uh, <laughs> I don't know. Take it for what it's worth, and if you're Egyptian, I'm sorry. And they give birth before the midwife can get there or get to them. <laughs> now, there's been scores written on this by some big names. For example, Augustine, Gregory, and Calvin condemn this as a lie. And they say that the Hebrew midwives lied to the Pharaoh and they broke a commandment. But I got good news for you. The commandments weren't written yet. They come in Exodus chapter 20. Can I get a witness? All God's people, yeah, it wasn't written yet. Yeah. Sorry, 19 chapters later, you're off the hook. Didn't know about it. I like to stay ignorant, therefore I'm not responsible for my behavior. Come on. (laughs) I don't know how to use that tool. I just don't know. Can you help me? (laughs) Sorry, that's personal confession. Anyway. Now, do you imagine that maybe like a memo went out to the Hebrew women, something like this. Hey, don't call for us early. Call for us after the child is born because this, you think that there was some talk, some communication, some planning, some strategy. We're going to need some of that. Amen? And I think they did it. I think that's implied. And they said when we get there, and, and this is what some people believe, that if this had happened, uh, if the word had gone out, then... They weren't technically lying. They were telling the truth. When we get there, the baby's born. Sorry. And some people say that what they used is hyperbole. Y'all know what hyperbole is? Hyperbole is extreme language. Maybe they were just being, maybe they hyperbolized the Pharaoh. Yeah. You can read volumes on it. In the end, let me just say to you, if they did lie, I'd say that's okay. You know why? Because there's such a thing as a higher law. And if, if you were in Nazi Germany and you got a knock at the door and someone said, do you have any Jews in here? You don't say, yeah, there, there's seven of them in the closet. They're right over there. I can't, I can't lie. I'm sorry. No, you say, no, 
<laughs> An interesting parallel to the response of the Hebrew midwives, writes Riken, comes from the village of Les Chambon, where 5,000 French Reformed Protestants rescued some 5,000 Jews from Nazi horrors. It's said that during World War II, Les Chambon was the safest place for a Jew in all Europe. The brave Chambonian Christians who risked their lives faced many difficult ethical dilemmas. On one occasion, the chief of the police interrogated the ringleader of the resistance, Pastor André Trocmé. Pastor, he said, we know in detail the suspect activities in which you are devoted. You are hiding in this commune a certain number of Jews whose names I know. You are therefore going to give me a list of these persons and their addresses. Trachme replied that he did not know the names of any of these people. Strictly speaking, this was true because the Jews had all given false identity cards. Although this seemed like the only way to save lives, Trachme and other Others lamented what seemed to be a loss of their usual candor. On another occasion, a Nazi lieutenant demanded to know where the Jewish refugees were hiding. Jews, the Shambonians replied, as if astonished. What would Jews be doing here? You there, have you seen any Jews? They say they have crooked noses. To be sure, such a reply required an element of deception. Yet it was more like a jest. Oh, those people who have crooked noses? No, we haven't seen any of them. And these are tough things, and I know that we could come to conclusions about, you know, what, if, what should have been done here. But the midwives did the right thing, and you're going to see why in a moment, because God is going to bless them. The midwives at least hyperbolized or strategized because they decided to love their neighbor as themselves. They did not do service for a lie. They did service, as one writer, for life and love. And remember, they may have saved Moses by their very actions. One more time from Riken, he says, there's no record of a reckoning on the midwives from Pharaoh. He doesn't kill them or anything. Quote, whatever ethical conclusion we reach about their act of creative disobedience... What the midwife says seemed to satisfy the Pharaoh, who seems on this occasion at least to have been a few bricks short of a pyramid, close quote. <laughs> oh, okay, you can't get there in time, well, all right, have a good day. <laughs> Say what? No record of a chastisement, no record of go out to the mud pits, no record of a beating, nothing. Oh, you can't get there? Oh, they're more vigorous than Egyptian ladies? All right. <laughs> I don't know if the Pharaoh was a little low on the IQ, but some see some irony here, some humor. Do you remember when the, uh, the uh, Magi come and they ask about the king of the Jews being born in Matthew chapter 2? And when they ask uh, about his birth, they read from Micah 5, the scribes do, and Herod sends them over to Bethlehem and he says, when you find the child, make a careful search and Bring a report back to me. I want to worship him too. But they were warned. And this is interesting because it says, uh, it says that there was a warning and Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi and became very enraged. Listen to this. And he sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and its environs. The Magi tricked Herod because they knew he was a liar and they went a different way 
and Egypt is involved here, and a king who is really a liar and wants to kill children and obviously wants to destroy the Messiah. And so here's how we can find out whether God approved, final two verses, when God, uh, so God 20 was good to the midwives and the people multiplied, two separate categories there, and became very mighty. And it became about, it came about because the midwives feared God that he established or provided New King James households for them. Those who honor me, I will honor, 1 Samuel 2.30, and God bless them. They didn't do what they did for the blessing, but he gave them families of their own. A fitting reward for people who preserved other people's children. They were given children as well. And there are scholars who believe there's a miraculous element to this, that midwives typically dedicated their lives to other people's families, and if they were older, they were probably past childbearing years. And some scholars be a, see a touch of the miraculous here, that they were enabled by God to have children later in life and had families and households of their own. God blessed them. He said, you're going to preserve my, fam- my people. I'm going to bless you. And they got the blessing. And God will bless your obedience, brethren. Ironically, most Egyptologists believe that the f- name Pharaoh means something like great house. And they, the midwives got their houses blessed, and Pharaoh was like, rats and double rats, what do I do now? But he had a plan. The Pharaoh 22 commanded all his people, could be his advisors, I don't know if it's the whole population, but at least another layer, perhaps all of the people working under him, saying, every son who is born you are to cast into the Nile, Every daughter you are to keep alive. The midwives aren't going to do this job, so my team's going to have to do it. How it would be done, I don't know. There's not a lot of detail here, but he ramps it up further and asks now his team of advisors to do his dirty work. And get this, he asks them to throw Hebrew baby boys into the Nile River. When you do a little study on ancient Egypt, most of the population lived by the Nile because it was the main water source for that uh, nation. It was also a sewer system. They would throw sewage into the Nile because of the strong currents. It would, it would take the sewage away. And one writer I was reading this week essentially says that what Pharaoh asked his team to do was identify a baby boy, take it, and throw it into the Nile River so that it would submerge under the waters and hopefully, from the Egyptian point of view, be quickly forgotten. And here's part of the justification. It was done for religious purposes because the Nile was seen as one of the main gods of Egypt. And if you throw babies in the Nile, here's how you can sleep better at night. If the Nile receives the baby as an offering and accepts it and it goes under the water, well, then you have to know that it was the will of the Nile God. You're just practicing Nile choice. That's all it is. You could laugh a little bit, although it's sad, isn't it? So you could, you could feel good about it. I know it's hard and you have this this drive within you to protect life as a human being, but throw the baby into the Nile and see if the Nile accepts the baby. In essence, turn the Nile red with their blood. Brutal. Unthinkable. But done today. Just in different ways. Do you know that what we're about to see 
is that the Egyptian army is going to try to follow Israel into the Red Sea and they're going to be drowned and God is going to do to that nation what they tried to do to his people and apparently did to some extent. I don't know how many died, but he's going to drown the whole Egyptian army in the Red Sea and The Pharaoh wanted to turn the Nile red with the blood of the Egyptian boys. And the first plague of God against Egypt is to turn the Nile red with blood. And God says, what you want to do to my people? Guess what? I'm going to do it to you. And some people believe that when the Nile turns red, God is essentially saying, your God is dead. (laughs) Wow. Well, let me just give you a moment to exhale and a moment of grace. Do you know that when the people of Israel left Egypt, there were people from other nations that joined them behind the blood of the Passover lamb, behind the blood on the door, if you will. Some Egyptians hid behind the blood. Do you suppose, and this is just a thought that hit me in the closing moments of worship, do you suppose that some of those Egyptians had been responsible for some egregious acts against God and saw the plagues and decided to repent and get behind the blood? This is a moment of grace, and here's what I want to say. As hard as this message is, and as much as we can see the parallels to our day, I'm so glad that the blood of the Passover lamb was spilled and that I can hide behind his finished work. Amen? Because I have done things that I'm ashamed of. And if the Lord kept a record of my sin, I could not stand before you, nor would I stand before him on that day. I would have to say, I am worthy of all judgment that you would throw my way, O Lord. But thank you that Jesus' blood was shed for me. Thank you that he died, the Passover lamb, that I might live. Thank you that behind that door, if you will, you pass over because you don't judge the ones who are behind the blood or under the blood of your son. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the gospel. Because this is, this is hard to take. And I think it's hard to take because it's just so applicable to our day. God, forgive us. I, I find myself thinking just at the end of worship, oh God, forgive us. Cleanse us from our sin. Lord, you are holy. I heard a a speaker say today that someone asked a question about, well, why did Jesus die on the cross? And he said that God extends mercy through judgment. That is, he judged his son instead of us. Mercy comes through the judgment that fell on Christ. That's the gospel. And if you've not met him, would you keep your head and heart bowed right now? If you, if you haven't realized that the judgment came upon the Lamb of God so that you wouldn't be judged. Because we can 
put ourselves here in many different ways where we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and sometimes we just didn't know any better, but yet we all have the skeletons, the things that we're ashamed of. Lord, thank you that we're behind the blood, under the blood of Jesus. Would you cry out to him if you've not met him before, if you haven't received his finished work in your life? Jesus, save me. Just make it very simple. Save me, Lord. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Thank you that you died for me. Thank you that you defeated death by rising from the dead. I repent and trust you. If you're looking at our nation right now and you're wondering how to pray, I think this is a good way to pray. Just, Lord, forgive us. Have mercy on us, Lord. You are so good. You delight in loving kindness. Would you pour it out upon the church and upon this nation? Would you forgive us? And, Lord, that's not devoid of asking for change because we need change. And perhaps lastly this morning, a prayer for courage. The word encourage means to put courage in. Many are discouraged, but I pray your people will be encouraged. I pray that we could maybe look back and reflect on two Hebrew midwives who said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord.